it is possible for kids to get fruits and vegetables into their diet for them to get all of these things. It's just, it's a process with it. And it's realizing, I think it's important for parents to understand that some kids don't just grow out of it. We have teenagers and young adults who come here who have been eating the same microwavable meal every single day at school because that's all that they can do. So don't assume that time will fix it, especially if it's a feeding disorder. If it's that less than 20 foods, brand specific, presentation specific, that is not going to fix itself. Well, friends, full confession, this interview is almost six years old, but it remains one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done because Dr. Nicole Birkins is truly one of the smartest, quickest thinking people I've ever met. And she has such a heart for kids. The information contained here is so important if you think you have a kid with any kind of sensory processing disorder. Let's have a listen. Hey, everybody. Katie Kendall here from Kids Cook Real Food. And I'm honored to be in person with Dr. Nicole Birkins of the Horizons Center. Uh, we're actually local to each other. We have a rare find. Another so fun. And, you know, we're going to talk today about some really interesting feeding issues that I know a lot of the audience sees in their kids or wonders about in their kids. And I'm super excited to jump in. Dr. Birkins, you have a really robust and varying background and such a breadth of experience. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey, um, what passions led you through your education to where you are today? Sure, absolutely. I uh, had a very winding path that took me to where I am today. I started my career in special education, actually, working with kids with more severe emotional and behavioral disorders, autism, severe ADHD, those kinds of things. And while I loved what I was doing in school with kids, I realized that I was only having an impact for about six hours a day. And I had parents of my students saying, show me what to do. Like, I see you doing these great things in school. I don't know what to do at home. Like, nobody's guiding me with really how to help my child. And so I really got interested in um, providing support to parents. And that led me to go back to school and get my doctorate in clinical psychology because I really wanted to understand more about child development, parent-child relationships. And to be able to take families from the process of first having a concern about their child and maybe looking at diagnosis all the way through treatment. So I did that and opened um, the practice that we're sitting in today, which, yeah, I mean, the odds that were like five minutes from each other, um, it, it's awesome. Um, and opened the practice in 2003 to really be able to support families. And along the way, my interest in food and nutrition really came about because while we were doing great things with the educational pieces and the psychology pieces and specific interventions for kids with, you know, neurodevelopmental issues, mental health issues, I really started to see patterns of physical issues in the kids that we were working with. Um, things like, you know, chronic ear infections, allergies, um, really limited diets, things like that. And, and between seeing some things in my patients and then also noticing some things with my own kids because I'm a mom of four, um, I began really researching and delving into the connection between the food that we eat and our behavior and our cognitive functioning and was amazed at all of this research that's out there that I had not learned in either my education training or my psychology training. And I began to realize like, wait a second, we need to be working on this. We need to be talking with families about this. So 
um, began implementing a lot of things with my own children and then here at the clinic and then went back and got a master's degree in nutrition and integrative health so that I could get board certified in nutrition because I really wanted to bring that level of expertise to my work um, with families to really understand and help parents understand how shifting the things that our kids are eating, using targeted nutrient intervention, using integrative lifestyle kinds of things makes such a big difference in the symptoms that we're dealing with with our kids. So that's how all those three components kind of came together and and led me to to doing sort of the integrative work that I do today with Family Scare. Oh, I just love that, that you started with education and then saw a need to be filled, went on to psychology, saw a need to be filled, yeah, on to nutrition. Yeah. And now, like, you're really training the whole person. Absolutely. Which is cool. And the center here treats infant to adult. Yep. Not just kids, which is very fantastic. Absolutely. Um, now, kids at the dinner table. This is going to be a sticky situation for parents of all types of Yes. Kids. Um, and I, I actually do some presentations that like bringing calm to, to the meal times and helping love it. to eat more. And there are always these parents who are hearing my tips going, yeah, but my kids are way picky, like way beyond that. Yeah. Um, and I touch a little bit on SVD or sensory processing disorder. And a lot of people say, I really want to hear more about that. So that's kind of why we're here today. Can yeah. I start right at the basics, like definition? What is sensory processing yeah. disorder? So sensory processing disorder is a term that's been around for a while that many families or parents are familiar with at this point, but I think there still is confusion about what that actually is. So sensory processing disorder refers to difficulties that happen in some children where their brain struggles to make sense of input coming from the sensory environment. Okay. So, you know, we can think about in school, we learn about the five senses, yeah. right? There's some additional ones as well, uh, but our brain has to interpret and make sense of that information. So information comes into our brain through touch, through smell, through vision, through those senses, and then the brain has to make sense of it so that we can react to it appropriately. In sensory processing disorder, what happens is the brain struggles to make sense of that input. So the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch, all of that's coming in like it is for any of the rest of us, but the brain is struggling to make sense of that quickly and effectively. So what you end up with is um, a couple of sort of categories of issues. Kids who are under-responsive to sensation. So the input's coming in and their brain is not registering it at the level that it's at. So these are kids who maybe don't really notice smells to things or that things have different smells or kids who are under responsive to pain. You know, moms will say he can fall down and like get a huge gash and doesn't really seem bothered by it, doesn't seem to notice. Um, so there's under responsiveness. Okay. Then we have kids who go the other direction and they're very over responsive. And that tends to be more what people think about the kids who everything's really loud and they have to cover their ears or the kids who say everything smells bad and tastes bad and they're not going to eat it or, you know, certain um, feelings in their clothing or the seams of their socks. Those are the more overreactive or oversensitive brains where normal sensory inputs are perceived by the brain as being much bigger and more averse than, than what they actually are. And you can have kids who had under-responsiveness and over-responsiveness at the same time to different types of things. 
So that those tend to be kind of the categories of that. And, you know, in addition to the five main senses that people typically think about, it's also important to know that there is a sense called the proprioceptive sense, which is the feel of pressure and gravity like on our muscles and our joints. So for example, if I pick up an empty laundry basket, my muscles feel the pressure of that differently than a full laundry basket, right? Like if I go to pick something up and I think it's going to be heavy and it ends up being light, it's like, whoa, right? Sure. Until the proprioception and my joints kicks in and says, oh, wait, no, this is an empty thing. You know, put less pressure on it. So there are kids who struggle to um, interpret proprioceptive input. These are kids who tend to either be crashing into things all the time. They seek out deep pressure. They have a hard time registering that. So they're running and crashing into things or they're climbing or they're bouncing up and down all the time. They're seeking that kind of proprioceptive input to give them an awareness of where their body is, how their muscles are connected to their body. So that's another important one. And then the vestibular sense which is our sense of balance, where our head is in space. Anyone who's ever had a dizziness episode or a vertigo episode or car sickness or, you know, going on a merry-go-round and not feeling what that's your vestibular sense. And some kids are highly sensitive to that. Even a little bit of spinning or swinging or car rides make them very dizzy and off balance. And some kids with sensory processing issues can do that over and over and over and over again for hours and never get dizzy. These are kids who are spinning or they're out on the swing, you know, for long periods of time. They're, they are, you know, under responsive to that. They need a lot more of it. So I mentioned those two aspects of sensation because those are some of the things that parents often notice. Like, why is my kid spinning around all the time? Or why is my kid constantly like crashing into things? Or why does my kid get in bed and want every blanket and stuffed animal and like everything on top of them? Um, those are some of the things that we can look for to saying and maybe there's some sensory processing kinds of challenges going on there. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I was gonna, I was gonna make you tell us the other senses, somebody. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the Guinness, like, can I? And there's a lot I don't know about. Um, so I'm glad you covered. Yes, yes. And, and it's so. I mean, it's evident how parents and teachers can see that kind of behavior and say, "Oh, like this child is disruptive. He writes respectful. I see you. You know, she can't right. fold herself. That's right. And they're just seeking more because they're not processing enough. Basically, that's exactly right. You know, it, kids are very are, are remarkably resourceful in terms of figuring out how to meet their needs. When we take the time to watch what's happening with their behavior, often that gives us all the clues and information we need to figure out what's going on there. Because kids do well when they can, right? No kid wakes up in the morning and goes, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm just going to try to create every problem possible for everyone. They don't do that, right? Kids want to, please, they want to do the right thing. When they're struggling, it gives us cues if we're able and willing to watch for it to say what's going on here. So kids in the classroom who can't sit still, or who are falling out of their chair all the time, or who are constantly getting up and, you know, jumping up and down or pacing back and forth or avoiding certain things, right? That gives us information in what's going on in the brain. And then that helps us to be able to know what kinds of strategies can we use to help with that. 
Sure. I mean, I like those kids are often dumped into an ADHD bucket. Absolutely. I'm guessing you're saying these are a bit separate when it comes to psychology. Yeah. Really, a lot of the things that end up getting called ADD or ADHD are actually several different things going on there. Many kids with ADD or ADHD have some degree of sensory processing, not all, but most of them. Same thing, autism spectrum kinds of kids. Many kids who are diagnosed with you know, disruptive mood disorders or oppositional defiance, like behavioral kinds of disorders, there's often a sensory processing component to it. Okay. And so then best practice to help these kids is to tackle each individual issue in the appropriate way. Sure. That's right. So obviously as a kid's cooking teacher, again, talks a lot about feeding kids healthy food. Yes. We got to talk about food. Is it, where is the cause and effect, cause or and or effect when food comes into play here? Yeah, there's, there's, Food issues sort of on both sides of the equation. So first of all, we know that what we eat impacts everything about how we feel and how we function. We know that. Yes. Not everybody gets that. We know that. Say that one more time for a second to forget. The things that we eat impact everything about how we feel and function. And there is so much research about that. Mm. I often speak about um, the food mood connection. Because when we put junk in our bodies in the way of food, we end up getting junk out. Junky behavior, junky mood, high anxiety, irritability, those kinds of things. So we know that the quality of food matters. And really what it comes down to is the nutrients. Because everything that allows our brain to function in terms of neurotransmitters, Um, in our brain, which allows us to process sensory input, which regulates our mood, our anxiety, our behavior, all of that, those neurotransmitters, what are they formed from? Nutrients. So when we don't get the right nutrients in the right amounts, it really impacts neurotransmitter function, it impacts brain function, it impacts physical stuff in the body. And, you know, a lot of times parents aren't aware of the connection between, you know, mental health and the brain and food. They think more about Well, my kid's constipated all the dry or my kid's complaining of, you know, feeling nauseous or my kid has reflux or whatever. Well, those things play a big role in how the brain functions in mood too. Think about it. If you have a little kid or even an older kid who's walking around totally constipated all the time because of the stuff they're eating, what's their mood like? What's their behavior like? How can your sensory processing work really well when your brain's really focused on the fact that you're not feeling well, right? So Food connects to all parts of how we function. And for kids with sensory processing issues, there's a few things going on. One of the things that we know is that many kids with sensory processing issues are low in certain specific nutrients. And the two that I'll mention um, for people to really look into are zinc and iron. Zinc and iron are both really important for our sense of taste and smell. So for example, when I have kids who come in who, you know, think everything smells bad, don't want to tolerate tastes, or the the opposite, they don't even notice smells, you know, of anything. When I see things like that, I think about zinc. And I'm looking at testing for zinc, seeing what their zinc levels are, and very often they will come back with very, very low zinc levels. And when we replete or or get more zinc in them, then their sense of smell, their ability to appropriately perceive and process smell and taste improves their appetite comes up all of that and iron is big for that as well so those of you who have children with some sensory processing issues picky eating patterns 
Um, maybe their appetite's not regulated well. Definitely look at zinc and iron. So that's on the one side of the nutrition piece. The other thing that happens nutritionally and food-wise is when kids are not um, appropriately processing sensation around food, they get avoidant of it, right? This smells bad. This doesn't feel good in my mouth. I'm struggling to move this around and chew and swallow it, or I don't like the taste of this. And what happens then is they develop a lot of avoidance patterns around new things. It's kind of like, here's the little group of things that I know feel comfortable to me and that I can feel confident if I eat them, they're going to feel okay in my mouth or they're going to smell or taste okay to me. And I'm going to stay away from everything else because it's scary and it might not be, you know, a comfortable experience for me. And so they really become avoidant. And that's how kids' diets really get limited. And then what we end up with is nutrient deficiencies, right? Because I'm eating chicken nuggets and French fries and mac and cheese and pizza, and that's my diet, right? Because that's what I'm comfortable with. But you can't get the broad range of nutrients that you need to function from those kinds of foods. So it becomes sort of this cycle where nutrient deficiencies exacerbate the sensory processing issues, but then the sensory processing problems exacerbate the feeding issues and you kind of get this cycle. Yeah. Wow. That is such a challenge for parents and a challenge for kids too. Right. As they were like waking up trying to be right the problem child. Um, the thing that breaks my heart really about picky eaters is just very much that cycle. Um, a lot of parents think I can't get them to eat anything healthy. It's always a problem. So why even try? Yeah. How do you take a parent from chicken nuggets, pizza, mac and cheese to getting them into some colorful vegetables, dare I say? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think the first thing is to really manage our own expectations as parents appropriately and realize that this is a process. Yeah. It's not going to happen overnight. And I think where a lot of parents get really discouraged is they've tried at some point to get their kid to eat something different, right? But what happens is if I take a kid who's comfortable with their, you know, few foods and I say, here's a spoonful of broccoli, you know, dump a big serving on their plate. You have to sit here until you eat it. Well, that's going to end up in a power struggle. That's even if the kid does eat it, they get really uncomfortable with it. They're going to be resistant and it's just unpleasant for everyone involved. So parents then tend to say to me, well, I tried, but he won't do it. So we really have to understand that it is a process and it's a process that starts with exposure. Because if our expectation is that a kid's going to start eating new things right away, for many picky eaters, that backfires. Now, I should say there's a difference between kids with picky eating preferences and kids with true feeding disorders. Kids with picky eating preferences have a good amount of foods in their diet. They may turn their nose up at things like they don't prefer to eat certain things, but they have a range of foods that they eat. Kids with feeding disorders have an extremely narrow range of foods, like less than 20 foods total that they eat, maybe very brand specific, maybe presentation specific. They'll only eat them if presented a certain way. So it's important to know that there is a range of kind of what we're referring to as picky eating. Um, And certainly kids with feeding disorders, um, most of them really do need and, and benefit from specific therapy around how to overcome that. But in general, the process for all of these kids is exposure initially without the expectation of eating it. 
So wait, treat picky eaters by not asking them to eat? Yeah. <laughs> Those are fun, Anne. Yes. Hey, parents and grandparents, do you wish that your kids would help out a little more around the house and maybe eat their vegetables? Let me tell you that knowing how to cut up produce is the key to making both of those happen. Our members' favorite cooking class year over year is our 10-minute knife skills and safety video. In that video, we teach kids ages 2 to teen how to hold a knife and how to hold the food. We use fun phrases like up and over soldier and hey, hey, out of the way that build a common vocabulary for your family to safely use knives, both with parent participation and later independently. It is an incredible skill for your kids to have. And you know what? I would like to give that training video to you for free. Just go to kidscookrealfood.com slash free knife skills. That's kidscookrealfood.com slash free knife skills. If you can't find it, just go to the homepage and click preview in the menu. It's right there all the time because we love building independence in the kitchen for kids. And I firmly believe that if you support real food, that means knife skills. Now back to the podcast. Putting things out there and exposing kids and expecting them to tolerate the exposure so that they can get used to the sensations of that is part of paving the way for them to get comfortable with eating it. So a picky eater might really freak out or get distressed or really resistive about, you know, putting a piece of broccoli in their mouth. But if we start by saying, let's go to the farmer's market and let's check out different kinds of produce, you know, for a little kid, I'd say, you know, let's let's see if we can find five green things here at the farmer's market. Picking things up, looking at it. This is broccoli, touching it, smelling it. If I'm making it in the kitchen at home, involving the child in that. Involving kids in food preparation, shopping, cleaning up is one of the best ways to work on acclimating them and getting them comfortable to new foods. It's not just about going right to the eating. So that's why I love the things that you do and that you promote because that exposure is so key. When a child's in the kitchen, helping to cut things up, helping to cook things, helping to serve things, put things on the table. What are they being exposed to? The smells, the sights, the sounds, all of those kinds of things related to it. And as they are exposed to it more and their brain is able to take in that information and get comfortable with it, then what happens is they're naturally less avoidant and they're more willing to move towards those steps of maybe, you know, trying a little bit of it or licking it or something like that. We move them in the direction of getting comfortable with eating it. And I've had kids with sensory processing issues and, you know, related kinds of disorders who parents have been amazed. They're like, my kid would never eat that. And suddenly I had him help me cut it up and put it in the oven. And I put a little bit on his plate just to have it there, not to make him eat it. And next thing I knew, I looked over and he was trying it. So it's the not pressuring initially. It's the exposing. It's the involving kids in the process of getting used to the various senses related to that stuff. And then that paves the way for more comfortable eating. Now, of course, there's different you know strategies and things too. Like if you're really just dealing with a picky eater, not a kid with a feeding disorder, but a picky eater who would really just prefer to have their mac and cheese and pizza, but there aren't other reasons why they can't eat other things. Then you do some of the common sense things like, here's how much you can have 
of that. And then we're also going to have this much. Or if you'd like to have, you know, X, Y, or Z thing, you know, this is what we're going to eat first. Um, and there's common sense things too, like what you keep in the house makes a difference. You know, personally, all he'll eat is, you know, cheese popcorn and suckers and Tostitos chips. It's like, well, that's coming into the house somehow. And it's not your six-year-old going to the store and buying it. So sometimes what we do as as parents is start to narrow what's available, right? Like, I'm just not going to bring the suckers into the house anymore, right? There's other things you can choose or not up to you. I'm not going to force you to eat something, but I'm also not going to easily make lollipops available to you. Or if it's a kid who really is, you know, constantly eating chips or something like that, we can strategically use our purchasing decisions and what we keep in the house as a way to help move them towards better choices. So, you know, those kinds of things work well, too, when you combine them with safe, positive exposure to food. That's great. Those are hard words for parents. And that's kind of what I say in my presentation, too, is that I had some hard words for you. That's right. You know, if you're playing into the game, right, you can't expect those changes to happen. So I love that you said that, too. And really, I like that you said, too, that the exposure, maybe more than once, it may be many, many times before anything actually goes in the mouth. Because I do have a lot of parents who will say, well, you know, I know other parents who say, if you haven't cooked it, they'll eat it. It didn't work for me. Yeah. And so I'm happy to have this like in my toolbox and say, don't worry, like just keep doing it. Right. I have to expect them to eat it the first time or every time. And here from a neurological standpoint is something that's important for parents to know. It takes the brain at least 10 exposures to be able to truly make a decision about whether it likes something or not. The brain. Because we hear that a lot. That's right. You have to introduce foods. That's right. And that's right. It was more of an outlook. It can be, but that's all the brain because the brain is interpreting the taste, right? Taste is nothing without the brain's interpretation. That's that's one person, another person. That's right. Which is also why I have many parents who will say, oh, I don't eat any of those things, which there's a modeling part of this too, right? If you want your kids to eat their vegetables, you need to eat your vegetables. But as adults, we've built up all kinds of stories about what we eat and don't eat and what we like and don't like. And it's funny because I'll have parents saying, oh my gosh, I tried that way back when I was little and swore it off. And then when I have them try it again now, they're like, actually, I like it. Yeah. It's like, right, because your palate has expanded and changed over time and you discover that you actually like something. So the rule of thumb is you have to try something at least 10 times before your brain can even know what it thinks about that. And that's the exposure and the processing of the different elements of taste and smell and texture. And so a kid might say the first several times, like, oh, no, I don't like that you say that's okay. That's all right, because we're going to work on it 10 times. And then then you can decide what you think. And you know what? Sometimes we do decide we don't like something. That's totally okay. But it's that idea that this is a process and the brain needs exposure to eating it in order to see what it thinks. So that 10 times rule is is based in the neuroscience of it. That's awesome. And yeah, 10 times is like, that's for you and me without right. any sensory that's right. processing. It. That's right. So the sensory processing kid might need yep. not more than that. Or if it's a more smell opportunity, that's right. Touch opportunity. Lots of exposure leading up to that 
10 times with the text, right? We may have exposed you dozens of times through helping with the shopping and putting the things in the bags and cutting things up and washing things and serving other cannibal things, even if I'm not going to eat it, serving some to myself to be exposed to it, right? Um, I may need a lot of exposure with that. And then I maybe can start to move towards the tasting it and then seeing over 10 times what my brain really thinks about that. Right. Wow, so interesting. Yeah. One of the strategies that I offered to parents for kids who don't even want that classic yep. thank you bite is yep. give them a second option of smell it, look at or taste. Yes, absolutely. So I'm excited to know that that's brain sign. Yes. We have a little brainstorm. Absolutely. <laughs> Any kind of exposure, because what we're doing there, too, is we're not allowing kids to get locked into these rigid stories about I don't like that. Or the I don't do that. That's right. Because we create all kinds of stories in our mind. And it's like, well... We're going to put it on your plate and you can touch it. You can lick it. You can smell it. You can play with it. I'm a big fan of when it's appropriate, letting kids play with food, you know, especially with younger kids. Let them play with food. Instead of using Play-Doh, let's use mashed potatoes. Let's make faces out of our food. I'll do a lot of that, you know, in the clinic. Our feeding therapist here does a lot of that stuff. That's a great way of using imagination, getting some playtime in, building structures, you know, with different kinds of foods, all of that type of stuff, because it's all good exposure. And it's not anxiety producing, because we're exploring and we're playing. There's no expectation that what's on your plate is going to go in your mouth. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Do we need to give kids who are having trouble processing those senses more concessions or like fewer rules than other kids? Yeah, I think that's really the exposure piece and being patient with it. A kid who really is just having picky preferences, but isn't truly having feeding issues as a result of that, you know, we're going to hold them a little more accountable and maybe set firmer boundaries than we will. And, you know, there are kids with feeding disorders who literally will not eat if we put firm boundaries in place. Like Dave. Dave. Yeah. Like that's not a lot of them, but that can happen. And, And there are some parents who are saying, yeah, that's that's my kid. And so that's not an effective strategy. And that's not what we want to do. So you kind of have to tease out where your child falls with that. That's certainly more the exception than the rule, but there are those kids. So, you know, my thing is if it's turning into meltdowns, power struggles, it's not working. So whatever boundaries you have in place, you want to back those up a little bit and say, okay, what's the next layer back that we can go as far as exposure. So if a kid is freaking out even about having something that they're not familiar with on their plate, it's like, okay, that's fine. We're just going to have the serving bowl next to you then, or we're going to put a little bit on a plate next to your plate. You know, so it's kind of like if you've pushed it to the point where they're really distressed and it's a big locked in power struggle, that's not helpful. Back up a little bit. Back up to the point where maybe they don't really like it, like what you're doing, but they it's not causing a big issue. That's right. And then you start there and you say, okay, that's my sweet spot. They're a little bit uncomfortable with this. They prefer for me you know, to not be pushing this, but they're not freaking out about it. Yeah. That's your sweet spot where you start and then you move from there. That's cool. What I think I hear that you're saying is that the expectation that you're going to still try 10 bites of Bradley is the same. Yep. For all kids, it's just some kids need a lot more steps. A lot more steps. Mm-hmm. And for kids with true feeding disorders, we're talking about a couple of years steps. Like for us at the clinic, what we say to parents, if they have a kid who comes in with an extremely restricted diet due to a feeding disorder, 
that's generally a two-year process to get them to be a comfortable eater. Comfortable meaning they don't need to bring their own food everywhere they go. They have enough variety in their diet that they're able to meet their physical growth needs with the food that they're eating. It is a process for those kids on that end of the spectrum who really have very restrictive avoidant patterns around eating and and are truly feeding disorder. Picky eaters, kids with picky preferences, it can be a much quicker process than that. But it is, it's about setting the expectation of what you decide needs to happen now and being consistent with that. And then when we've achieved that, then we we keep moving with it. Yeah. And what a relief, honestly, for parents to hear. Like, yeah, I know parents of the the pizza, pasta, chicken, nuggets, right? And they are, they're they're bringing their own food or they're stressed. The parents are very stressed about brands and presentations. That's right. That's not good. No, it's not good for the parents. We know it's not good for the kids. That's right. To saying, hey, you know what? It might take two years. Yeah, you can do this. You don't have to say my kid will never eat broccoli. No, you're that's right. Eat broccoli. That's right. In time. Right. It's just going to. Right. It's going to tear one. And maybe it won't be broccoli. Right. But it is possible for kids to get fruits and vegetables into their diet for them to get all of these things. It's just it's a process with it. And it's realizing I think it's important for parents to understand that some kids don't just grow out of it. We have teenagers and young adults who come here who have been eating the same microwavable meal every single day at school because that's all that they can do. So don't assume that time will fix it, especially if it's a feeding disorder. If it's that less than 20 foods, brand specific, presentation specific, that is not going to fix itself. Picky eating preferences. Sometimes kids, you know, over time they do, but still, you know, the thing about Food and eating, yes, it's to get nutrition. Yes, it's a necessary thing, but it's also a social activity, right? So when kids are growing up with really, you know, scary stories in their head around food and really restricting and having picky preferences, it does impact them socially. They can't just go to the birthday party and have fun or, you know, it it impacts their relationships as well. So there's lots of reasons why it's important to work on this. And also, I mean, like you said, the iron and zinc, getting that balance can help absolutely to the sense yes. issues. Yes. But are there other kind of like superfoods or foods to avoid that can help kids holistically in, in their body and in their psychological process? Absolutely. I mean, in general, things with lots of sugar, things with chemicals, artificial sweeteners are very toxic for the brain. Um, for some kids, it's the artificial dyes, okay. you know, in the foods that can really cause some of these kinds of processing dysfunctions, if not cause them, make them a lot worse. Um, Certainly things like high fructose corn syrup and sugar. Who doesn't prefer those things? Right? Our brain is wired. They're addictive to us. They're addictive to us. Some of the chemicals like MSG that are added to food, they're added because they have an addictive impact on the brain. So we're all prone to that. But if we're trying to expand our kids' eating preferences, their nutrient intake, we need to watch for how much of that stuff we're including in their diet because we may be at odds with our mission, right? It's like if I've got a kid who's a real sugar addict and wants that stuff all the time and I'm fueling that, that is impacting their appetite, it's impacting their brain function, it's impacting their sensory processing, and it's going to make it a lot harder than to work on the things that we need to work on with, with eating or anything else. So certainly, you know, where we can make shifts towards less processed foods, home-cooked meals, 
things like water instead of soda pop and sports drinks and sugary juices all the time. Doesn't have to be complicated stuff, but any shift that we can make in those areas is going to help a child's brain and body function better. It's going to make the process of helping them to tolerate and accept new foods much easier. So I think a lot of parents are really surprised to find that when they start taking out some of the things like high fructose corn syrup or some of the chemicals or the dyes or things, they're surprised to notice a difference in their kid's behavior, right? And they would say, oh, I didn't even realize that was happening. Well, we just get so used to how they are and we don't realize, oh, they're actually less irritable when we take those things out. Um, so I really encourage parents to to look at that and to just say, what what would happen if? What would happen if we didn't have, you know, gummy bears and things like that, you know, on a regular basis? What do I notice um, with my child? Just having a curiosity about that and trying it. I, I think parents are pleasantly surprised to find that even basic things like that can have an impact on their kids. Yeah, that's interesting. And it can be so hard to get the kids on board. I love to tell parents just like be science geeks about it. Yes. You know, make a little chart and yep. a science experiment and right. you're, you're the focal point. Yeah. That's what happens if we cut out colors for five days or whatever. Yep. And just see what the kids think about that and see how it goes. Yeah, I think that's a great idea and getting kids curious about it and saying, maybe it will make a difference. Let's find out. And then they feel like, oh, this is interesting. Let's see. I think it's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we love and we love too at Kids Cook Real Food, of course, to get kids interested in yes. food and in the kitchen. And if you could just recap again, because this is even news to me, how much exposure mm -hmm. can impact kids and sometimes how many times it takes. Yeah, totally fascinating to me. So getting yeah. kids in the kitchen, yeah, new reason on me. Absolutely. Getting kids in the kitchen is so beneficial for supporting improving their diet and getting them comfortable around new foods, especially if you have a child with sensory processing issues autism, ADHD, any of those sorts of neurodevelopmental issues that have a tendency to impact, you know, comfortability around eating and new foods, being exposed in the kitchen is awesome. And the thing is, cooking, teaching your kids to cook, involving them in the kitchen has so many benefits. It's like hitting a lot of birds with one stone, right? It's like, okay, I'm getting you um, comfortable around new foods, yeah. but I'm also teaching you really important and valuable life skills. And, you know, I was telling you about a new study that came out that said that teenagers and young adults who have cooking skills do better in terms of their own health and healthy eating and things as they get older. So it's sort of like we know that common sense wise, but we've got studies now that say that's the case. So teaching them valuable life skills that they can take with them. And you've got the togetherness aspect in the busyness of life. We often don't spend enough time just being together, talking to one another, you know, doing real things together and cooking and food prep and all of that stuff in the kitchen is a great opportunity for that too. So to me, cooking and, and doing food related things with your kids hit so many of those important areas for their development in addition to getting them more comfortable with new foods. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. so great. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Dr. Bricken. Can you just uh, let people know where to find you online because you have both the physical presence um, here in Michigan yeah. and online. Absolutely. So the website for the clinic is horizonsdrc.com. And there you can find information about what we do here. And we work with families throughout the country and around the world with various types of things that we do. Um, you can read about what we offer and my team. And we've got lots of articles and things on there too. Um, and then my drbirkins.com website has 
tons of articles and videos and things um, about these topics and more. So people are welcome to take advantage of any of that. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Just the depth and breadth of your knowledge is amazing. Really looking at the whole child. And we'll definitely make sure that those links are anywhere we share this video so that people can find you online. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the interview. I hope your brain feels fed and your heart feels full. We are all parents on the same journey, just trying to raise healthy, independent adults. Next time you think, man, there's no handbook for this job. Now there is. Look up the Healthy Parenting Handbook wherever you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review as that helps other people find the goodness that we share here. And of course, subscribe. You can also look for our shorts as a reel on Instagram at Kids Cook Real Food. Hit that heart and share those with your friends and subscribe to the Healthy Parenting Handbook shorts channel on YouTube.